Thanks. Good evening, friends. If I don't know you, my name is Kurt. I'm going to be reading, I'm going to be taking us through this passage tonight. Uh, everyone just take a breath. Take a breath. Because we want to hear God speak to us. Let me pray. Father God. We, ex- we want to stop now and just acknowledge that you're the king of this universe. We want to stop now and recognise that in this moment, for those who put their trust in Jesus, your Holy Spirit dwells in us. And we want to acknowledge, Lord, that your word is made alive by the Spirit that lives in us. And so we pray just that tonight, that the Spirit that is in us would enable the word of God to be understood and to have our lives transformed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A number of years ago, I took a funeral here. Uh, it was for a lady named Joy Harubi. She was a legend, an absolute legend of a lady. Uh, she died in her late 80s. Uh, and she had been in film and television for years and years and years. She actually ran a community television program in her garage up until the age of close to 90. Uh, so a real amazing woman. Uh, and in her funeral she decided what was going to be in it Uh, and the last thing that was to be played was a video that she'd produced herself uh, which I knew was going to be a gamble like she said she wanted to have the final word and I thought oh no what's this going to be anyway it was a classic she dressed up as an angel and acted like she was in heaven and she was in heaven as an angel coming down and talking to us all while we were at the funeral and saying anyway everyone was laughing and crying simultaneously at the same time she had a she had an opportunity to speak words of love, to speak words that she missed people, to make a few jokes. But at the same time, she had a moment to impart a bit of life wisdom from beyond the grave through this video. I wonder if you were able to create a video after you've died to give to people, to impart to them some wisdom for life, what would you say? What would be your one minute of wisdom? What would be your one minute of wisdom? If you're new with us tonight, uh, we are finishing a series on the book of Ecclesiastes, which is all about wisdom. It's a preacher look at, looking at life and coming to conclusions about how life works best and how to make the most of life, how to live wisely in the world. And so tonight we're kind of looking at his kind of nutshell or his one minute of wisdom on how we can make the most of this life. And it's going to be summarised tonight by four R's. There's actually five, but um, there's only four points, but there's two R's in the first point. <laughs> so for the, so that you, you don't realise this, but God blesses alliteration. <laughs> so it's a powerful, powerful force. All right, so point one is rejoice rightly. Rejoice rightly. Two R's. So verse nine, read with me. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Now, right through Ecclesiastes, if you've been with us, there's been the consistent refrain, this thing said over and over again, because everything we have from, in life is a gift from God, that, that it can't be ever held on to, we can't hold on to it ultimately because then we die and things waste away, then you should enjoy it when you have it. 
When it's in your hand and God gives you the ability to enjoy it, enjoy it for what it is. And so he says, young people enjoy your life. Now, there's a lot of young people here tonight, but if you are a little bit older and you think, I'm not a young person, in Ecclesiastes, you are a young person. So in Ecclesiastes, it has a very broad definition of young. That is, anyone who isn't on, on their deathbed is a young person. So if you're here tonight at church, you are a young person. So this is speaking to you and it's saying to you, follow your passions. It's saying, follow the leading of your eyes, following your desires. Enjoy the gifts of this world. Sleep around, take as many drugs as you want. Do what you want. No, he's not saying that, is he? Verse 9. But know that for all these things, God will bring you to judgment. He's saying, yeah, enjoy life in God's good world. That's why he designed it to work, to be enjoyed but rejoice rightly because God in the end will judge. See, Ecclesiastes has shown us two ways to enjoy life. We have the gift life. Sorry, sorry. there's the wrong type, which we've called the gain life. And that is where we take God's good gifts and we use them however we want. We decide how they work best and we use them to try and come out on top of life, to kind of run our own lives. But then on the other hand, Ecclesiastes has shown us another life, which we've called the gift life, where it takes God's good gifts and uses them the way he designed them to work best. See, although some people think the God of the Bible is anti-fun, he's kind of like this cosmic killjoy, the reality is he made the world and he knows how it works best and he created us to enjoy it his way. And so he's saying to young people, enjoy it. Enjoy his good world. But enjoy it rightly. Rejoice rightly. That's his first point. Secondly, he says, remove. So verse 10. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. So the preacher has spoken about the gift life in verse 9. He says, enjoy it as a gift. Now he kind of says, remove the gain life, which again is this theme that's flooded through Ecclesiastes as he says there he says remove vexation put away pain they're the two words that are used earlier on in Ecclesiastes to talk about the gain life so Ecclesiastes chapter 2 23 vexation or frustration was a symptom of the workaholic who just works night and day and they never get ahead they're frustrated in 5 16 it talks about pain as the description of the worker who works hard for their money every day, day in and day out, and when they die, they lose it all. The preacher is saying if you're trying to make ultimate profit out of your life, if you're chasing money or, or relationships or, or friends or pleasure or work career success or education and thinking by by acquiring all these things, by gaining all these things, you can end up on top of life, being the master of it all, then he's saying you're going to have a frustrated, painful existence. It might work for you for a while. You might be thinking, hey, I'm getting ahead here. But in the end, you realise that it's a chasing after the wind. That gain life is futile because the world is cursed, it's broken, it doesn't work the way it's supposed to. And in the end, death comes to all. And so he says to young people, young people, young people, don't live the gain life. Remove it. 
You see, you can imagine, I mean, none of you are 90 years old, but you can imagine when you're 90 years old, when your body is, is deteriorating rapidly, when you're going to funeral after funeral, you can start to realise to yourself, hey, wait a minute, I'm not going to be able to master my world here. I'm not going to be able to take things beyond the grave. I'm not going to be able to ultimately profit in life. You, you, can, you figure when you get there, you should learn that lesson. But when you're young, you can actually think the opposite. It's really easy to think that if I work hard enough, if I'm smart enough, if I watch enough life hacks on YouTube, if I read enough books, if I meet the right people and network the right ways, then I will ultimately get ahead and I'll be the master of my own world and other people's. And we can use so many different things to give us that gain. And so when I reflect back, on my decision to go into ministry, I, I'd like to think there were, there were good motives there that I wanted to serve God's people. I, wanted, I was encouraged by the Lord to actually minister. But at the same time, as I've gone through my ministry, I've realised time and time again that while I have those good motives to serving, that there's also this streak of gain mentality in it as well. I remember when I first was, in that first three years of being here at Wild Street, after three years, uh, there was a marriage. Two of my youth leaders, their marriage just imploded before my eyes, just completely got crushed. And for the first three years, nothing had really gone wrong. It kind of was like a bit of a honeymoon period. Then all of a sudden, this marriage imploded and life was really, really messy and ministry was really, really messy. And it made me think, why am I even doing this? The ministry was working well for me when everything was going well, but then all of a sudden, it required a loss and all of a sudden, what? I didn't sign up for this. I thought that by doing ministry God's way that I could preach the gospel in such a way that I was smart enough to be able to control all the things around me so that youth leaders' marriages don't implode, that this doesn't happen, this hasn't happened. I had a gain mentality. But instead I need to enjoy life as a gift. I need to enjoy ministry as a gift. And even this opportunity here tonight... I could be using this opportunity to teach the Bible as a means of gain, to try and make myself feel good or make myself feel powerful or at the end of the night have people become Christians or at the end of the night, like, they're all good things. But I need to enjoy it as a gift. A privilege, like a blessing to be able to sit here with you together and sit under God's word and listen to what he has to say. Remove the gain mentality, remove vexation. Well, how do we do it? So we got, we firstly, we need to, what was the first one? What was the first R? It was rejoice rightly. Second one was remove the gain mentality. How do we do that? We need to thirdly remember. We need to remember. So verse one, he says, remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the days, evil days come, and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Now, when we say remember in the Bible, we're not just saying, hey, remember, remember the answer to a question. Uh, to remember is to remember who God is. Remember God is to remember who he is. To, to relate rightly to him as God. That he is the creator, that he is the sustainer of the world, that he controls your very existence now. If you're looking at your phone, he's controlling your existence. He's controlling your phone. He's controlling everything about you. 
He is the creator, designer, sustainer. He determines, determines the times. He makes everything beautiful in its time. No gain can happen apart from him. He's saying, remember this before you get old and you fall apart and it becomes obvious that you actually can't do life without him. So verse 2, he gives this description of ageing. He says, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed. Now this is clearly about ageing and death. A couple of different ways on how, they, how it's describing it. Uh, one see it as this description of an ancient funeral. And so verse 5 talks about mourners going about the street. Uh, some see it as an allegory of, of a person ageing and dying. So this, uh, the keepers trembling are a picture of the wobbly knees of an ageing person. Uh, some read, see here kind of this description of end of the world kind of language. So it's making this comparison to the end of the world and the end of life or ageing. It's kind of the unmaking of creation. Regardless, the point is, he's saying, remember your creator in your youth because, because before you start ageing and you die. And to make young people take notice, he uses this vivid language. He uses this vivid language to get their attention. Verse 6, before the silver cord is snapped, the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern. So it gives two precious things that are broken. This is life broken. That's a picture of death. Two pictures of water being spilled out. Water, a symbol of life. Again, pictures of death. Verse 7. And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Remember we said the preacher sees life through Genesis 1 to 3. Genesis 2, God breathes into dust to make man. Genesis 3, God says, because you have rejected me you are under a curse and will return to the dust the preacher is saying remember the god who created you while you're young because you're going to die you will die verse 8 vanity of vanity says the preacher all is vanity that's what he said right at the beginning that life is a breath it's fleeting Death prevents ultimate gain, so remember your creator in your youth. The preacher is saying to make the most of life, to rejoice rightly and remove frustration, you need to remember who God is. Why? Because our biggest problem, you and I, both of us, all of us, our biggest problem fundamentally is this. We think we're him. We don't wake up in the morning and think, hey, I'm God today. Hey, And we don't introduce ourselves to people as God. Hey, I'm God, nice to meet you. But everything we do at the end of the day is driven by this idea that we can control our existences, that we're masters of our own universe, that we can be the gods of this world. But the preacher is saying, remember this. He's God. And that means... You're not. You're not. You will age, you will die. There's the proof that you're not God. Don't get fooled in your youth into thinking you can control your existence. Remember, God is God and you are not. And finally, revere him. Revere him. Verse 9. 
Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. When you come to wisdom in the Bible, it's presented as both a gift, a gift given by God, God gives us wisdom, and a task. That is, we need to work hard at, at trying to understand how to live in this world. We don't, it's not just this automatic policy. He gives us everything we need to understand about life and we go and live it. He says, I'm going to give you the gift of wisdom, but at the same time you need to work it to make sense of life. Here the preacher is talking not only had the gift of wisdom, but he involved himself in the task of wisdom. He weighed and studied wisdom. He looked at all the, all the world and all the data of the world and observed life and made set, tried to do experiments to make sense of it. He thought hard about how to be wise. And then he wrote down those words of wisdom and he read those words of wisdom and they were a delight. But at the same time, he says they were like goads. Now a goad is a kind of stick that if your sheep is not going in the right direction, you whack the sheep to make it go in the right direction. So here he's saying wisdom is that, that little bit of pain that pushes us in the right direction to help us live wisely. But at the same time, he also says they are like nails firmly fixed. That is the idea of a promise or something you can trust, a word you can trust, all given by one shepherd. And so the image of the shepherd here is the image of God, God the shepherd who cares for us, his sheep. He's saying, the author of Ecclesiastes is saying, the wisdom sayings, the wisdom of Ecclesiastes is ultimately the words of God, the shepherd. And they're like a fixed nail, a firm nail that can hold us, but at the same time, occasionally, they're a painful word that corrects us. I mean, we know that, don't we? There's a sweetness to the word of God. There's a, there's a surety in God's word at knowing who you are, knowing that you're saved, knowing he's God, knowing he's in control. There's, I can't tell you the number of times when I've gone through life and things have been really, really hard and the, the fixed nailness of God's word and his wisdom has been amazing. But at the same time, there are times when God's word's a little bit painful. Where it just prods you in areas where, you just, where you're really, really tender because he's correcting you to make him more like him. Therefore, he says, verse 12, My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Now, I know there's HSC students here tonight, so you're probably feeling those passages. Much study is a weariness of the flesh. He's not saying he should not study. He's not going against that. He's saying he should study. What he's saying here is, beware of anything beyond these. He's, he's saying, here are the words of the shepherd, the wisdom of God, that is the scriptures, the Bible, He's saying, be careful about going to other forms of wisdom. So, so self-help gurus and man-made philosophies and life hacks and all the different places we go to get our, our wisdom apart from the scriptures. He's saying, be careful with that. Make the scriptures and its wisdom the centre of your world, the, the way in which you understand and live life. Don't pursue all these other wisdoms in a way that makes them the centre of your life. Sure, you can explore them and read them and they're helpful, but it's always understood in light of the ultimate wisdom that God gives. Make sure the Bible's wisdom is number one, even when it 
even when it stings. See, that's, that's sometimes the hard bit. When you go to read these self-help gurus and all these other people out there, they've got these books on how to live life the best and you read the books and they say all the lovely things and it makes you feel really good on the inside and then you read God's wisdom and it, and it corrects you and it stings a little bit. And you go, oh, I don't know, I wanna, I don't know if I want to listen to that. These are the good words of the shepherd. He's saying to the young person, listen to these words because they're going to they're gonna lead you into life. They'll give you enjoyment of life. Verse 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. His conclusion, fear God. Be in awe of God. It's when we understand that God is the creator, that he is the sustainer. He is the one that determines the times and the seasons. He is holy that we revere him, we're in awe of him. It's when we realise who he is that we realise that we're not him. So, and when we realise we're not him, we can actually see the world rightly. See, if you, if you thought you were the God of this world, consciously all the time, then how many mistakes would you make? See, that's what happens. Because we have this instinct that thinks we're God, we make all these decisions thinking, oh, God, I can run this universe... And then when time after time, we hit wall after wall after wall. He says, fear God and keep his commandments. Living according to what the designer of the world says works best in his world. Living according to the way the designer says is the most enjoyable way to live in his world. Verse 14, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. For some, the idea of God as judge is the reason they reject Christian faith. You must have had conversations with people where they say, look, I'm, I'm cool with your God being a loving God, but I'm not cool with the God being a, like a, a God who judges or punishes or does anything like that. But the reality is, the God of the Bible is the judge because he is good. It's because he's loving. If he created a world and he made it to work in a certain way to make it work best and he had creatures in this world that said, stuff you God, I'm going to make it the way I want it to work and their stuff you God ends up hurting other people and hurting themselves, then it would be an evil God who would just sit back there and just go, yeah, whatever, I don't care. Do whatever you want, I don't care. It's because he's good. It's because he's loving that he judges. He brings every deed into judgment. The preacher says, revere God and live in his good, enjoyable creation, knowing he is the good, loving judge. So there's our four R's, or four or five. Rejoice rightly. Enjoy God's gifts his way. Remove the gain mentality. Remember God is God and you're not and revere him by living his wise way. That's the preacher's one minute wisdom for life. But if you've been with us the last eight weeks, if you've listened carefully to the way that Ecclesiastes describes humanity and the way we live, you might have felt a little bit like me, a little bit discouraged. Because time after time he's told us that 
although there is this good way to live, and he's outlined that way over and over again, that consistently we fail. That the, the gain mentality, the envy, pollutes our souls and our motivations time after time after time, and that even trying to be good, even trying to be really righteous and wise, does not cut it. And that's really frustrating because we want a wisdom in the Bible to be one that's more like a self-help book where you get seven steps to happiness. We want God to say to us, all right, Kurt, if you do this, 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 and this, if all these different life hacks, then you're going to come out on top in life. But, reality, uh, but Ecclesiastes keeps hitting us between the eyes with the reality that we are broken and our world is broken and that we don't get it as human beings, and we keep chasing the wind, and we keep thinking it's going to be different this time. If I just get a little bit more educated, if I just learn that technique, if I just get that job, if I just pass that course, if I just have that relationship, then then I'll be happy, then I'll be fulfilled, then I'll be ultimately in this place of heaven on earth. And it's like this chasing of the wind. So we started this series saying, this book is helpful in our conversations with people who don't believe in God because it points out what most people, if they're honest, can see, that our world is broken. And so for those who are stuck in the world of Ecclesiastes, there is very little hope. Everyone's running around thinking, if we can just do this, do this, this, but it never actually works. We can make it work for a while, you know. You can think you're going to get the career ladder up the career ladder and you just get to this point where someone in the organisation hates you for no reason that you can understand. All of a sudden you're demoted or you lose your job completely and you're unemployed. There's so many things like this world in this world that it's just broken. And so if you are stuck in the world of Ecclesiastes, then it is a little bit of a hopeless world and you feel it as you read the preacher. He's like, oh, look, God's the judge. I know he's going to judge things in the end, but I really don't know how he's going to pull this whole thing off. But Ecclesiastes is not the end of the Bible story. And so that's the beautiful thing about the Scriptures is that it's not just these individual books that we get wisdom from, but they're actually part of one big story about humanity. And Ecclesiastes features in that story and it gives us this outline of a wise life And then as you keep reading through the story of the Bible, you come to Jesus. And he fills out the picture of the outline of the wise life in Ecclesiastes. Jesus is the wise king. Not seeking to gain for himself, but enjoying his father's good world with thanks. He honoured his father and he actually brought about the, the kind of uh, remaking of creation. You think about Jesus' miracles. You, uh, chapter 11 and 12 of, of Ecclesiastes, you have this picture of ageing and death as this inevitability that just happens. We're all going to die. But Jesus comes and he re- reverses things and that he heals people and he actually brings people back from the dead. Jesus is this wise king who can reverse the curse's effect on this world. But not only that, he dies on the cross and take God the, to take God the Father's judgment for all the times when we've said to God, stuff you. He rises from the dead to show that 
the world of Ecclesiastes, although there's no ultimate gain in this life, that because of Jesus' resurrection, there will be a new creation and there can be ultimate gain in him. And he did all that, Jesus, that those who trust him, who recognise him as the greatest gift, might be able to live what Ecclesiastes calls us to. That we might rejoice rightly and remove frustration. See, when, when you recognise that Jesus is the greatest gift imaginable, that is a relationship with Jesus, is your greatest gift in this world, the thing that's most important to you, your meaning in life, your purpose, when that's your greatest gift, then all the things, other gifts that God gives you, like your family, like your friends, maybe a car, a PlayStation, your job, all those great gifts, you can hold them with an open hand and enjoy them for what they are instead of closing your hand over and saying, I need to find ultimate meaning and fulfilment in this thing or I will be nothing. We won't try to find meaning and purpose in them because we have the greatest gift in Jesus and so we can hold them with an open hand, enjoying them for the wonderful aspects of life that they are. So when we recognise Jesus as the greatest gift, we rejoice rightly, we remove frustration. When we recognise, when we have this living relationship with Jesus, we, we secondly remember, oh, sorry, we thirdly remember, that you, when you know who Jesus is each day, then you know you're not him and you know you're not God. That you don't create and sustain your world, but you know you're dependent on him for life and breath and everything. And fourthly, living with Jesus as your king, you are empowered to revere God. Knowing Jesus is the good shepherd. Listening to his wise words that even though sometimes are painful, you know are always faithful. Faithful promises that you can bet your life on. In all, that even though you deserved the judgment on the cross, Jesus took it for you. See, because Jesus lived the wise life, because he was the wise king, trusting him gives you the opportunity to as well. And so what Ecclesiastes sets up is this outline of this wise life and Jesus fills out the picture. And so wise Christian living, therefore, is not nine steps for self-help. It's not even... a, a, a Christian wisdom is not just a bunch of principles on how to make sense of life. Wise Christian living comes when we trust and obey Jesus, the wise king. And so in this sense, wisdom is a gift from God because God reveals, us, reveals to us who Jesus is and so we have his wisdom. It's a gift. It's a task to be pursued. We need to think hard about how we live wisely in this world. We need to read. We need to explore the scriptures but what pulls those two things together is that wisdom is a relationship with a wise king. Wisdom is a relationship with a wise king. And so if tonight, if you have not said to Jesus, I want to follow you, wise king, I want to turn away from walking away from you and rejecting you and saying, stuff you, I'm doing it myself, I'm going to have my ultimate gain over here. If you've not turned to say, I want to trust Jesus, what you did on the cross for me, then you're stuck in Ecclesiastes. 
you're stuck in Ecclesiastes, the pain and the frustration. At this point in your life, because you're young, you might be thinking to yourself, no, I'm not. Things are good. I've got friends. I live in a really great country. Things are good. But the reality is, although they might be good now, Ecclesiastes is saying, you will age. And as you age, you will suffer. As you think that you can take these good things of this world and get ultimate fulfilment out of them, you will realise eventually that they're not going to give you what you think they're going to give you. That relationship you putting, you think you're betting your whole life on is going to make you happy ultimately is not going to do it. That job, that career after where you think, if I just get that place, then I'll have made it, it's not going to deliver. You're going to keep going through life and you're going to figure out eventually what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying is here, that it's a chasing after the wind. And so tonight is an opportunity for you to turn around, to turn around and accept Jesus, the offer of Jesus, the wise king. And now when I say that, I'm not promising that if you put your trust in Jesus, the wise king, that you somehow escape the world of Ecclesiastes. The promise of the, of, of the scriptures is that we continue to live, even as Christians following the wise king, we continue to live in a broken world. We still suffer. We'll still age and die, even if you are Christian. But the promise is the new creation that Jesus will bring about, the wise king. In that place, how is it described? There's no more pain. There's no more frustration. For the old order of things have passed away. And in this in-between life, between now and the time when Jesus returns, you will enjoy the relationship you have with King Jesus that although it might not completely remove the frustrations and the brokenness of life, will give you hope in the midst of it, will give you his presence in the midst of it. So if that's you tonight and you have not put your trust in King Jesus, let me encourage you, young person, trust him today. But if you have accepted Jesus, then remember that wisdom comes as we live in relationship with him. Continue to live in him, for him, with him. Make him your greatest good, your key relationship, your meaning, your purpose. Why? That you might rejoice rightly, that you might remove frustration, that you might remember that he's God and you're not, and that you might revere him live in awe of what he has done for you daily. Let me pray. Father God, we are we're astounded that you care for us. The way we corrupt and take your good world and use it in ways that just make ourselves to make ourselves feel happy, feel pleasured. The way we reject you and think we can run this world without you. Father, we deserve your judgment. And yet the promise of the gospel is that Jesus came and was judged for us. Jesus was punished for us. You, God, sent your son Jesus to take our place. The wise king came to save us, that we might be your kids and one day inherit your new creation. Father, for the people here tonight who have not put their trust in Jesus the king, 
I pray that Holy Spirit right now, you would be doing what you need. Use that goad of the word of God to see them feel it tonight. Feel the desperate need for King Jesus. They might turn and be saved. Father, for us who do know the word of God, that do know the gospel and are following King Jesus, Father, help us to hold on to his words. Help us to see how precious they are. Help us even when they are painful to rejoice in the pain brought about by your word because we know as a consequence of them you are forming in us a wisdom that comes from you and it's a, a foretaste of the beautiful world will be established in, in the new creation. And we pray in your son's name, Jesus. Amen.